Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website, at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number five in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, March the 4th. First, I'll be talking to Lumbros Fotios, founder of Australian software development company Station 5, who is warning Australian universities are failing to keep pace with advances in the IT industry fueling a growing skill shortage in the sector. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver about his assessment of the profit reporting season so far. But now, let's talk to Lambros Fotios. Well, Lambros, you've got some concerns about the skill shortages in IT at the moment. Yeah, I think we've got two main issues, Leon. So on one side of the spectrum, you've kind of got the, the lack of you know education. Um, I think that the education streams just aren't quite up to date with where the industry is. And on the other side, we've got a huge shortage when it comes to uh, importing high quality talent from offshore just due to what's happened with COVID and border closures. Uh, I mean, is it that people aren't doing uh, courses at universities? No, they are doing the courses at the universities. The issue is that the courses aren't quite up to date anymore. So they were really relevant, you know, four, five, actually longer, maybe seven, eight years ago now. But when you look at the technology and how it's evolved, as you can imagine, technology has evolved quite substantially over the last three to four years. We haven't seen the education streams adapt at the same pace. And so what you're learning at university may teach you the foundational skills but it's not teaching you what's relevant to be job ready in the current market. So what's the answer? Well, the answer from an education perspective is making sure that, you know, the, the industry and the universities are actually working together at the moment. They're not working hand in hand. You've got the university failing, the university system failing to update their courses and remain relevant. And then on the other side, you've got the industry that isn't, necessarily informing or working hand in hand with the universities and so as a result of this you have other forms of tertiary education six to 12 month boot camps or diplomas generally that are popping up left right and center separate to our hex funded tertiary education streams that are trying to fill this void but the reality is a lot of large institutions in Australia that hire software engineering talent require that tertiary education from a university and this is where we're seeing a huge kind of collapse 
in kind of what the industry or what the education streams are producing and what industry expects. So you're suggesting what the university should be doing is actually developing these boot camps themselves. I think they need to change their approach altogether, Leon. I think, you know, our university degrees within Australia, the bachelor's degrees, they're all kind of three to four year degrees and they've been established, you know, off, off the ideologies that were kind of preset with law, medicine, engineering. But when it comes to software, you know, the three big degrees, which are computer science, computer engineering and software engineering, these are degrees where spending three, four years at university just doesn't really make sense because programming languages become obsolete after seven to eight years. So spending three to four years at university just doesn't add up. And so realistically, what you should be learning at university is perhaps the foundational skills, which don't take longer than six to 12 months to teach. And then the industry relevant skills right now that are timely and are going to get you job ready. So learning the latest paradigms and programming languages and then come back in four or five years when, you know, the industry reinvents itself and spend another three months learning the latest and greatest. But this current method of come learn, you know, come to a three, four year bachelor's degree just isn't fit for the purpose of the tech sector. But what you're suggesting, isn't it, that uh, what you need to do then is universities then have, let's say you learn the foundations for 12 months and then after that you have a whole series of boot camps at the universities to get you up to speed with what's happening out there and ongoing. And uh, those boot camps can be ongoing for post-university education for people to keep coming back after they finish their degree and keep getting updated, would that be the correct way to approach it? That's exactly what I'd want to see, yeah. And I think it's what the industry needs. Yeah, learn the foundational skills, come back for the booster degrees every couple of years when you want to learn something new to keep you relevant. Okay, so I mean, what, so what's happening in terms of wages in the industry? Yeah. Wages are skyrocketing. We're seeing the border closures at the moment that have led to, you know, Australia relied heavily on imported talent through skilled visa um, migration, we're seeing, we've seen none of that for two years. A senior engineer, Leon, to put it into perspective, a senior engineer two years ago, pre-COVID, let's say February 2020, before this all started in the way that it has, is we saw a senior engineer was seven plus years of experience in industry post a degree. That's what we saw. And they would attract a salary of 120K plus. Now, fast forward two years, Border closures, no imports, and the, the industry has failed to produce talent from an education perspective, and the technologies have just continued to advance, which has perpetuated this problem. Two years on, we've lowered our standard of what a senior engineer is. Now, instead of being seven years, we've lowered it to four years because we just can't find the talent. And the salaries have jacked up from 120 to 200K base. So we've seen an incredible rise in salaries over those two years. And uh, tech companies really, uh, companies can't really afford to pay that much, or can they? I think some companies can, but the companies now that are limited in that respect are your kind of uh, large institutions. So think your ASX listed banks, insurance companies. But when it comes to innovation, which is what we want to see in this country, at least, at least I do, what we're really seeing is that the startups are not able to afford this. The SMEs who are trying to leverage technology to get a plus one or a one up over their competition in the larger institutions, 
they can no longer find their talent. And you don't just need one software engineer, by the way, Leon, you need, you know, three or four to construct a team. And so this isn't something that a small or medium-sized business or even a funded startup in its early stages can really look to do anymore. And so as a result, we're looking overseas. That's all we can do. Okay. And then, then, then of course, you've got the whole issue with, with borders and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's outsourcing. So instead of, you know, what we used to do, which was let's find the talent overseas and, you know, bring them over here to the promised land of Australia, which offers a great lifestyle uh, and, and all the other merits that come with living down under, we're now seeing uh, instead that those jobs are just going overseas and we're happy to work remote. Everyone's doing work from home and work via Zoom anyway. So heck, let's just, you know, let's just get people from overseas to, to do the job as well. So you can get people say in India or uh, Sri Lanka or Philippines or China doing it from their home base for the SMEs and startups here. And exactly. That's exactly what we're seeing. Yeah. I mean, my business, Leon, to put into perspective, which has been around for six and a half years, is the life, lifespan of Station 5, my organisation. Over, you know, over the first four and a half years of the business's life cycle, didn't hire a single engineer overseas. In 2021 alone, we hired 70 people, of which more than 60 were from overseas. But you hired them while they were staying overseas? Correct. And this is... Uh... <laughs> This would be quite a common issue around the world, wouldn't it? It's exactly what we're saying. I mean, we we have not just, you know, not just hired these engineers and this talent ourselves overseas, but, you know, we've spoken with a bunch of other startups in Australia that have been forced to do the same. They'll go close a seed, a Series A or Series B capital raise, and they'll have to do the same. But we're not seeing the same in other countries. You know, the US isn't forced to do the same because their border restrictions weren't as tight as ours were. Same goes for Europe. You know, like at the end of the day, Australia has had one of the harshest border restrictions on the planet. And while that's been beneficial from a health perspective and making sure that, you know, we protect ourselves in that way, what it's actually done is, is diminish us in this industry quite, quite significantly from a country that used to be in the top 10 uh, in terms of overall innovation from a study from Microsoft down to well below that. Right, so you're saying what we need to do urgently then is address the whole training system to start with. I think it's twofold. So we need to we need to make sure we bring in the right talent, and we need to address this training issue. You know, Australia needs to produce in the latest budget. We need to produce sixty thousand IT jobs or IT workers rather per year. That's the growth that we need to see, and we haven't seen that. And so as a result, yeah, we need to make sure we're bringing in talent, not just through our own training systems, but also but also from offshore. It can't be one or the other. It needs to be both. Right, right. And when we're talking about bringing talent from offshore, you're talking to a company like yours would be bringing three, maybe three from overseas. Yeah, I mean, we'd rather not send the jobs overseas and leave them overseas. We'd rather bring in the talent and give them jobs here. That's quite an issue. And is this being felt right around the industry here? Absolutely. Yeah, we're seeing funded startups. So those that have third-party venture capital funding behind them, unable to afford talent, which is just ludicrous. And it's not happening anywhere else in the world. Okay. Well, uh, Lambert, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. And now let's talk to AMP Capital Chief Economist, Shane Oliver. Shane, what's your opinion of the profit reporting season so far? Well, so far, so good. We're about 60% through the reporting season. In other words, about 60% of major companies have reported. And it's been uh, pleasantly... Good, I must admit, on my count anyway. 
the number of beats companies that outperform market expectations are running at 47% versus only 29% underperforming. So that's uh, that's quite impressive. You're saying 60% of companies reporting profits to be up on a year ago. And then it's down from the last reporting season. But then, of course, the last reporting season was saw the initial rebound from coronavirus lockdowns of 2020. You've also seen about 55% of companies raising their dividends, which, again, is down, but it's still you know, a healthy number. And, of course, we've seen more companies' share prices outperform the market on the day they report. So overall, it's been reasonably positive, and that's been consistent or it's been reflected in consensus earnings expectations for this financial year, which have been revised up. They started the reporting season at around 13%, and as of this morning, they've pushed up to around 13.6%. So, so, so far, so good. Yes, there's issues with costs uh, blowing out as a result of supply chain concerns. Most of the time, that's more of a negative from some some companies are benefiting from the lack of supply. For example, Seek is benefiting from a very tight jobs market. But overall, the results have been pretty good, particularly, I think, for the banks, a couple of the banks particularly, and also for resources stocks. Okay, but the, the costs are quite an issue. I mean, how, how long do you expect this to continue? Well, the costs certainly are an issue. I think so far companies have either absorbed that in their margins or, or rather absorbed that, their cost control in other areas. Uh, some have had to put up their prices, though, and to the extent that they can't do that, then, then, yes, it will become an issue for company margins and therefore for company profits. So it depends how long it goes on for. Some companies seem more negative on this front. Others, like JB Hi-Fi, thought that the cost control, the cost blowout, the supply chain issues would start to come under control sometime in the next six to 12 months. So there's sort of a split of opinion on that one. Um, but it's certainly a big issue, but it doesn't seem to have dampened uh, profit growth overall through the last half. The other thing I think worth noting is that we, the companies seem to have weathered the Delta lockdowns reasonably well and seem to be weathering the Omicron uh, disruption earlier this year reasonably well as, as well. So from a demand point of view, most companies seem to be saying things are pretty good, but there is that cost issue. So how do you see that panning out over the year? Uh, I mean, I, I think these cost issues will remain an issue through the first half of the year. If anything, they're, they're still intensifying, which you know, is going to result in higher prices, continuing upside on inflation, and also a pickup in wages growth, which ultimately will you know, be factors that drive the Reserve Bank to raise interest rates in August or possibly as early as June. In the second half of the year, I think we may start to see a little bit of relief as countries, the country opens up, workers return, not just in Australia, but globally, production picks up, but more spending rotates away from services, right, away from goods back towards services. That should see some of these goods supply issues start to abate, I think, through the second half of the year. So I think it's certainly an issue for the first half of the year, but by the second half of the year, it should start to um, settle down a bit. Uh, so with the borders opening up, where do you see that uh, affecting the unemployment figures? Well, that's a good question. I, I guess it depends on how quickly foreign tourists and particularly immigrants and backpackers return, it may act as a bit of a dampener in terms of the further reduction in the unemployment rate. But by the same token, uh, immigration is also a source of demand in the economy. So um, it's, it's a bit ambiguous as to which way that one goes. But our, our base case is that unemployment continues to fall further as a result of reopening of the economy generally and the spending of uh, pent-up savings. 
and that the unemployment rate by the middle of the year will have fallen below 4%. It's currently 4.2%. So that, I think, uh, will be another factor contributing to, to still higher wages growth and the Reserve Bank ultimately raising interest rates in August or possibly early as June. So how many rate rises do you see coming in this year? I mean, uh, I noticed Commonwealth Bank was talking about four this year. Look, it, it's possible. You know, at present, we've got two hikes factored in. Uh, it seems economists are falling over themselves to get ahead of this one. And, of course, uh, the Reserve Bank is just adding to the speculation by constant commentary on the issue themselves. So it's, it's, you know, there is a good chance that uh, the rate hikes, some of the rate hikes that we've got penciled in for 2023 could actually occur in 2022. In other words, it ends up being front-loaded, that the Reserve Bank starts in either June or August and then raises rates you know, for, through a few successive meetings. And so by the end of the year, we end up with a cash rate around 1%. So that, that is quite possible. And then there's a complication that that will likely result in a fall in house prices from later this year, which will then take the pressure off the Reserve Bank. So if we, if we later this year and into next year, we see the supply chain issues starting to abate, and the upwards pressure on inflation starting to slow. And at the same time, we see downwards pressure on house prices, which we know from 2018, when prices fell back then, uh, is actually a dampener on spending in the economy and acts a bit like a monetary tightening, that that, that could then take some pressure off the Reserve Bank. So, yeah, short-term risk is we get more rate hikes this year, you know, up to 1% on the cash rate, and then we get less rate hikes next year. Either way, I, I don't think hiking the cash rate to 1% this year or even 2% next year will be enough to cause mass defaults by Australian households because Australian borrowers are assessed on the basis of whether they can pay 2.5% or now 3% buffer, what they call the serviceability buffer, above the interest rate on offer. So if you're down for a 2% mortgage or these days a 2.75% fixed rate mortgage, then you're assessed whether you can pay 3% more than that as part of the serviceability buffer as mandated by APRA. So I think a, a 2% rise in interest rates and mortgage rates should be something that Australian households should be able to withstand, but it will act as a bit of a dampener on spending in the economy. And so I, I, I think that the sort of the, the scare campaign around all of this or the scare mongering around all of this is probably a little bit overdone. I think the biggest impact from higher interest rates will be less demand for housing as borrowers find that when they, they line up to get their mortgage, they can borrow less than borrowers could a year ago, simply because interest rates are higher. And that, in turn, will crimp buy demand, which will lead to downwards pressure on property prices. But I don't, I don't see a wave of forced selling kicking in where people actually default en masse on their loans. I mean, that's been predicted for years now, but I think that's, that's very unlikely. Right, okay. But, I mean, obviously the Reserve Bank does not want to uh, raise interest rates to a point where it's uh, crimping the economy. But what impact would the slowdown in house prices and demand have on the GDP? I guess by definition, you know, the Reserve Bank would be raising interest rates when they start raising interest rates to try and slow the economy down, to slow demand down. But they don't want to go so far as they collapse, <laughs> collapse things. Uh, so this year we see growth of around 4.5% in the economy. Uh, that's down from, well, the numbers are coming out next week, but they probably show growth of around 5.5% or 5% last year. So growth will have slowed down, but I think as we go into next year, we probably slow further towards 25 to 3%. But I don't think things will go so far as to collapse the economy. This combination of higher interest rates, which crimps spending power on the part of households with a mortgage, combined with... You know, the easy 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on games behind us the reopening impact will run its course combined with falling house prices will lead to slower economic growth but i don't think it will be enough to collapse the economy and i don't think it will be enough to to send us back into collapsing inflation that that's the balancing act that the reserve bank faces they yeah they're under more pressure to raise interest rates to control an inflation problem on the upside but they don't want to raise interest rates so much that it takes us back to where we were before, which was inflation being too low on the downside. So it's a bit of a balancing act here, which means, yeah, for the most part, the Reserve Bank will tread carefully in raising rates. But I don't, I don't think that they're going to go so far that it crunches the economy. I just, I just can't see that. They're not stupid. They know that we have more debt. Households have more debt than they did in the past. They know that interest rate moves are a lot more potent than they were in the past. So therefore, they won't need to raise interest rates as much as they did in the past, which suggests that uh, yeah, short of making a big mistake, they're going to be fairly cautious in raising rates and not, not get too carried away. So the Reserve Bank is uh, quite aware of the indebtedness of house Australian households? I think they are. I mean, if you go look at the Reserve Bank publications and their chart book and their statement of monetary policy, you know, there's lots of charts in there on showing the household debt-to-income ratio and showing that, it's ha- that it is higher than it was in 2009, which in turn is higher is when they last raised interest rates, which in turn is also higher than it was in previous tightening cycles. So that's something the Reserve Bank is more than aware of, and higher household debt relative to incomes does make the household a lot more sensitive to higher interest rates than in the past. So I, I think yeah, this, this means they're going to tread carefully. They also know from the 2018 experience when they didn't raise interest rates, but they tightened macro prudential controls or lending standards quite significantly. They, they know from that period that when house prices were falling, nationally they fell about 10% from a high in 2017 to a low in early 2019 or mid-2019. They fell about 10% nationally, 15% in Sydney. They know that that period actually uh, saw a dampening impact on consumer spending, which which uh, this time around, if you get the same thing, it will mean less pressure on the Reserve Bank to raise interest rates beyond a certain point. Now, the other thing to note is that as we go into next year, we're going to see a significant amount of households with fixed mortgage rates come off their fixed rate terms that they signed up for in 2020. They might have signed up for a two-year loan, two-year fixed rate loan. They'll come off those two-year loans. It might have been for 2%, and they might find that they could be paying 3% or 3.5% on that fixed rate loan, or it could be even 4%. So whatever it is, they'll be signing up to much higher 
fixed rate terms or even higher variable rate terms, which will be a de facto monetary tightening as well, which again will take some of the pressure off the Reserve Bank in terms of raising interest rates as we go through 2023. Well, Shane Oliver, that's all fascinating and thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, after S&P Global downgraded Russia's credit rating to junk status late on Friday, Russian bonds tumbled on Monday as investors braced themselves for the possibility that the latest round of Western sanctions on Russia could push Moscow to default on its debt for the first time since 1998. That would have an impact on financial markets around the world. US and European moves over the weekend to cut Russia off from the global financial system as Moscow stepped up its invasion of Ukraine have fanned concerns that foreign holders of Russian debt will not be able to receive interest or principal payments. Sanctions against the Russian central bank are expected to seriously hamper its attempts to deploy its more than $600 billion of foreign reserve to shore up its finances, leaving markets contemplating the possibility that a country with a debt of only 20% of gross domestic product could fail to repay lenders. Russia's dollar-denominated bonds plummeted on Monday, with its largest, a $7 billion bond maturing in 2037, halving in price to $0.33 on the dollar a level associated with the high levels of distress, according to TradeWeb data. Ray Attrell, a strategist at National Australia Bank, warned that a Russian sovereign default would also echo through the European banking system, estimating that banks in France and Italy each owned about $25 billion of Russian bonds, and Austrian banks held roughly $17.5 billion of exposure. An oil shot back above $100 a barrel, and US and German government debt rallied on Tuesday, as massive uncertainty sparked by Russia's invasion of Ukraine unnerved investors, leading stocks in Europe and on Wall Street to slide further. Russian equity markets remained suspended, and some bond trading platforms were no longer showing prices, but dealing in the world's major financial centres was orderly, albeit jittery. The sixth day of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the disruption caused by sanctions have raised questions about the toll of the crisis on global growth and inflation. And Coles has joined a boycott of Russian vodka, as liquor retailers across Melbourne ditched the drink in a show of solidarity for Ukraine. The removal of Russian-sourced drinks from sale at Liquorland, Vintage Sellers and First Choice was announced on Tuesday. Products made in Russia will also be pulled off shelves at major liquor retailers Dan Murphy's and BWS after calls for boycotts from the Australian-Ukrainian community. Parent company Endeavour Group made the decision to remove drinks originating in Russia, including vodka, from across its retail, hotel and online businesses in response to Moscow's invasion of Ukraine and lobbying from members of the Ukrainian community. The Endeavour Group companies include Dan Murphy's, BWS, ALH Hotels and Jimmy Brings. And the Future Fund will wind down its $200 million exposure to companies listed on the Moscow Exchange as some of the world's largest funds dump their investments in response to the invasion of Ukraine. Some of Australia's largest investors, including superannuation giant Australian Super, have holdings in several Kremlin-connected Russian energy companies. The nation's sovereign wealth fund had $204 billion in assets at the end of last year, with no holdings in Russian sovereign debt or other fixed income. And the Reserve Bank of Australia said it will remain patient as it assesses risks stemming from Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the resulting jolt to energy prices. The central bank has kept its cash rate at a record low of 0.1%. And Australia's gross domestic product jumps 3.4% in the December quarter, marking a strong rebound from the 1.9% fall in the prior quarter. Economists had forecast a 3.5% quarter-on-quarter growth. And Sydney home prices have fallen for the first time in 17 months, signalling that Australia's housing boom, fuelled by the pandemic and ultra-low interest rates, is all but over. 
Australia's most populous city recorded a 0.1% decrease in prices in February, while values in Melbourne were unchanged, according to a CoreLogic Inc. report on Tuesday. Although house prices still generally rising across the country, the national monthly growth rate of 0.6% came in as the lowest since October 2020. The country's housing boom, mirrored in other countries during the pandemic, is fizzling out ahead of a widely expected tightening cycle by the central bank. And one in three women experience online abuse in their working lives, and it can have devastating consequences for their careers, according to research commissioned by Australia's eSafety Commissioner. The report, Women in the Spotlight, Women's Experiences with Online Abuse in Their Working Lives, explores the experiences of women who have a strong online or media presence for professional purposes. The study found most abuse occurred on social media, including Facebook, 62%, Instagram, 26%, Twitter, 18%, and LinkedIn, 14%. Abuse also occurred on personal emails, 21%, and work email, 15%, followed by SMS, 16%, and chat apps, 13%. And Shell has signalled a further expansion in energy retailing is in its sites in Eastern Australia, after inking a deal to buy 49% of West Wind Energy Development, deepening its push into renewable energy to replace retiring coal power plants. The purchase of the West Wind stake will give Shell a stake in about 600 megawatts of wind generation already in operation in three wind farms in Victoria. West Wind also has further 1,400 megawatts in the meeting phase and 3,000 megawatts in earlier stage development. The first move by the energy major into the Australian wind power sector adds to Shell's growing clean energy platform in the domestic market, which includes carbon farming mm. business Select Carbon, mm. solar farm development Esco Pacific, and most recently, green household electricity retailer PowerShop. And Viva Energy will build a green hydrogen plant and the country's first public hydrogen refuelling station at its Geelong refinery site, part of its plan to turn the site into a hub for low carbon energy. The $43.3 million project, which is roughly half funded by the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, will involve building a 2 megawatt electrolyzer, a hydrogen fueling service station and a contribution towards the funding of hydrogen powered vehicles to be used by partners including Toll Group and CleanAway. Viva will also build a 15 megawatt solar farm at the refinery site to provide power for its operation and in support of its target to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The project, costing about $20 million, could be expanded to 20 megawatts at a later date. Viva said the new energy service station, which also includes funding from the Victorian state government, is comparable with other large commercial refuelling installations around the world. And James Packard's Crown Resorts faces a blockbuster fine from the financial crimes watchdog in a move that threatens to derail its $8.9 billion takeover from US private equity giant Blackstone. Austrac has launched legal action against Crown, accusing the group of more than 500 breaches of anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism financing laws. In a statement of claim totalling 863 pages, damning revelations included Crown dealing with patrons involved in sex slavery, one as late as November last year, a month after Victoria's Royal Commission found the company no longer suitable to hold a licence for its flagship Melbourne casino. Austrac also alleged Crown let its high-rollers customers carry large amounts of cash on, on its private jets across the world with no controls over the handling of the money, and turned over more than $8 billion in what was known as a Chinatown junket, despite management being aware of the risks of money laundering. Each breach could attract a fine of up to $22.2 million, although it is expected to take into account the company's market size. For Blackstone to trigger its exit clause from the Crown deal, the company needs to be fined at least $750 million. This penalty would put it in the same territory as Westpac and Commonwealth Bank, 
which Austrac fined $1.3 billion and $700 million respectively over anti-money laundering breaches. Austrac has yet to quantify the penalties it's seeking against Crown. Since Austrac began its investigation, former Crown Chair Helen Coonan and Chief Executive Ken Barton have resigned, replaced respectively by Ziggy Sutkowski and former Lendlease boss Steve McCann. And a company backed by Google's owner Alphabet is replacing the supermarket delivery driver with a drone. Wing has signed a deal and pilot program in Canberra with supermarket chain Coles to deliver 250 types of products. Wing has launched a pilot program in Canberra to deliver groceries by drone to households in several suburbs. It is pledging to fly the groceries to people within minutes of them ordering online. Wing is not flying groceries directly from Coles supermarkets. Instead, it has a hub in Canberra which has been stocked up with 250 of the supermarket's top selling items. People can order these items through a specially designed app. When an order comes in, Wing has packers ready to fulfil it. The drones are then sent up into the air and flown to their delivery address using automated technology. And Woolworths venture capital arm W23 has taken a 40% stake in an online shopping fast fulfilment business that uses robots to pick, pack and send items that can typically squeeze inside a shoebox. The fusion of robotics and smaller package sizes is putting a rocket under delivery times. W23 has invested in the Sydney-based MP Fulfilment, a company started 20 years ago by entrepreneur Rodney Barkley. MP is thriving in the fast fulfilment space, where orders can be ready to ship within hours. It operates across Australia and New Zealand, with the warehouses in Sydney, Melbourne, Perth and Auckland. MP promises same or next day delivery 80% of Australasia, and largely deals in small items such as toys and health and wellness products. And researchers from Monash University have developed new technology that will improve the efficiency and lifespan of lithium sulfur batteries, widely seen as underpinning global efforts to decarbonise economies. First commercialised in the 1990s, lithium-ion batteries now power electric vehicles, mobile phones and other electronic devices. But they require large quantities of minerals such as cobalt, nickel and manganese that are increasingly in short supply. Lithium sulfur batteries are widely seen as offering a solution. Sulfur is a waste material and is cheap and abundant supply through the technology it has been hindered as scientists struggle to improve slow charging and discharging rates. Researchers at Monash University said they have developed a battery interlayer that allows exceptionally fast charging while also improving the performance and lifetime of the batteries. And former Leighton Holdings executive David Savage and his wife Jennifer Savage have been named in a criminal complaint in France that alleges breaches of trust and extortion relating to a loan in return for use of an apartment in the Savages' French Chateau. The new complaint is separate to the Australian Federal Police investigation into bribes paid by other Leighton executives to secure contracts in Iraq. Mrs Savage, who worked for Leighton Holdings between 1998 and 2011, was arrested by the AFP in January 2021 and charged with two counts of giving false or misleading information to the company's directors, allegedly to conceal a multi-million dollar slush fund for the bribes. And Australian retail sales were surprisingly strong in January as shoppers weathered a surge in Omicron cases with aplomb, suggesting the economy maintained considerable momentum into the new year. Data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics out on Monday showed retail sales climbed 1.8% in January to $32.5 billion, the second highest level on record and easily beating forecasts for 0.4% gain. And Rio Tinto and the Australian Securities Investments Commission have asked the Australian Federal Court to approve a settlement that would end a four-year legal saga for the sum of $750,000. Like its peers in the United Kingdom and the United States, ASIC had pursued Rio 
over the time the company took to disclose the deteriorating nature of its 2011 investment in Mozambique coal, which was eventually impaired by Rio in January 2013. ASIC had accused Rio's then-chief executive Tom Albanese and its then-chief financial officer Guy Elliott of misleading and deceptive conduct over the time taken to report the impairment, with a particular focus on why the impairment was not included in Rio's August 2012 results. Charges against those individuals have been dropped, and Rio has instead conceded it contravened its continuous disclosure obligations for a 27-day period between December 21, 2012 January 17, 2013. The impairment was disclosed immediately after January 17, 2013. For context, the settlement fee equates to barely 15% of the total remuneration taken home last year by Rio Chief Executive Jacob Stausholm, who was not working for Rio when the alleged breach occurred. The settlement fee equates to about 1.5% of the 27 million euro or 50.1 million Aussie dollar Rio paid to the UK's Financial Conduct Authority to settle an investigation into essentially the same matter. And Suncor says it is expecting losses from the floods roiling Queensland and New South Wales to cost it more than $75 million, with insurers inundated with at least 15,000 claims as the damages bill grows. ASX-listed insurers IAG, Suncor and QBE ended down on Monday in anticipation of rising costs as powerful storms created record-breaking floods. The Insurance Council said that at least 15,000 claims had been reported from the flood by mid-Monday. More were expected as the damage bill grew. Suncor and IAG between them disclosed 8,000 claims rising from the floods, with losses set to mount after insurers were smashed by wild weather in the first half of the financial year. IAG said 3,200 claims had come in as of 7pm Sunday, and with more than $681 million in natural catastrophe claims booked in the six months to December 31, IAG is already $299 million over its natural peril estimate for the financial year. And the profit reporting season is winding up. InvoCare's statutory revenue rose 11% to $532.5 million, while operating EBITDA was up 22% to $125.5 million. Reported profit for the year was $80.2 million, rebounding from $11.5 million less a year ago. Sandfire Resources revenue rose 22% to US $311.8 million, while profit climbed 24% to US $55.2 million. Dalrymple Bay Infrastructure's revenue from ordinary activities rose 2,054.2% to $505.1 million, while it reported profit of $129.1 million rebounding from $113.2 million loss a year earlier. VGI Partners generated revenues of $94.4 million for the calendar year on a gross normalised basis, nearly 50% more than the prior year, while normalised net profits after tax jumped two-thirds to $51.2 million compared to 2020. Liberty Group's underlying net profit increased 4% to $122.3 million. Statutory net profit rose 40% to $116.4 million because of the absence of expenses related to its IPO. IT hardware and software distributor Dicker Data's 2021 net profit rose 28.6% to $73.6 million as sales climbed 24.2% to $2.48 billion. Sigma Healthcare's net profit after tax is expected to be a loss of $5 million to $10 million for the year, largely impacted by the SARS accounting policy change, exceeding $30 million in the current year. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Pete Neal, founder and CEO of PowPow, an Australian-developed app that is changing the way Australians use energy in their homes, slashing bills and reducing household carbon emissions in the process. The app, 
has so far reduced CO2 emissions by 21,388 tonnes and helped Australians save $6,955,723 since November 2020. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen about what can be done to isolate Russia's economy. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you talking business next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.